Well, good morning, Calvary Baptist Church, and a special good morning as well, and a welcome to all of you that are visitors or friends, or somehow maybe you have found your way to our Facebook feed or our YouTube feed, and uh, you are curious or you've been blessed by the singing that you heard. I know I have been, and it is a great day to worship God together. So now as you get together, whether you're by yourself or you're with your spouse or your family or wherever you may be, why don't you grab your Bibles and take it and open it to John, the Gospel of John chapter 13. And I only have one verse as my passage today, one verse, John chapter 13 verse 1. And I want to talk to you about the endless love of Christ, the endless love of Christ. But before I do that, Let's bow in prayer and thank God for what we have been able to partake in already. And let us ask him to allow us to eat deeply and fully at the word of God this morning. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this day. Even though, Lord, this is not the way we would plan a service. For me to be here speaking to an empty auditorium, looking at cameras, Father, imagining who's listening and who's not, and for so many others that are gathered in the quietness of a rec room or a living room, even a bedroom, whether they're by themselves or with their family, Lord, this is not how we would choose to do church. This is not how we would choose to be the church, but we know that you are greater than our circumstances. We know that governments are frail. They don't always make the right decisions. But Father, we pray for our government. We pray for the leaders, both in our Parliament Hill in Ottawa, to our Confederation building here in St. John's, to our town City Hall in downtown St. John's. And Lord, I not only pray for Calvary Baptist Church, I pray for the churches of St. John's. Indeed, Father, for the churches spread across Newfoundland and Labrador. Father, I pray for the churches of Canada, the United States, and indeed around the world. Lord, we are not alone. The church is so much bigger and grander than just Calvary Baptist, and the promise is to every single church that names the name of Jesus that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. And so, Father, governments that get it wrong, a virus that ravages our world, Lord, sin and death and sickness that ravages the world as well in the form of mental illness or addiction, or hurt, or accident. Father, we know that we can come to you in our pain. And Lord, as we turn our attention to your word now, and we learn about your love. Father God, help me to be a vessel. Help me to be a mouthpiece. But Lord, I pray that I would be gripped by the very sermon I'm about to preach. I pray that the audience watching and listening would not see me as a salesman. But Father, someone who is standing before them to say, I have truly experienced what I'm about to preach on. And yet, Lord, I am a sinner. And I can't unless you do. Father, it is your word that is powerful, not mine. It is your spirit that breathes life into the life of human beings, not my preaching. So, Father, may we just be still and know that you are God over the next 30 or 40 minutes. And may you be pleased by what you hear and what we say about you, and may it be true. May I be true to the text and not spring forth or shout forth my opinions. But Father, graciously and humbly submit to the word of God. 
And Lord, for every Christian watching, that they would be challenged. For every searcher, doubter, cynic, maybe even skeptic that's watching, that they will be intrigued and they will see Jesus, not me or not even Calvary Baptist Church. So Lord, we give this time to you now because it is holy and precious because we want to make much of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is my first time preaching since we went into Alert Level 5 lockdown based on the schedule for 2021. My desire is to preach for a month and then cycle through all of our Mile One Mission planters and interns and then preach for a month. And this way it gives us a bit of consistency. But little did I know that God's plan was for us to go in lockdown. And that was three Sundays ago or three Fridays ago. This is our third Sunday But I thought it was very interesting how God's Holy Spirit would work and our timing would land on John chapter 13 and verse 1. As I want to talk to you about these conversations that Christ has with people, predominantly in this chapter, in this verse, the endless love of Christ. Because if there was ever a time that our world is both obsessed with and yet, I believe, confused and even jaded... It's with this subject matter called love. Love. What do you think of when you think of the word love? How would you define it? What examples would you give to prove it? You see, the biggest issue I think we have in our English-speaking world is that we use the word love in so many ways. Love is both a word and a feeling. It is abstract and tangible. And you see this in Hollywood. A number of years ago, there was a movie made called Contact. The two main characters in the movie were Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey. These two characters would ironically fall in love with each other, but you need to understand, Jodie Foster was a scientist who was a professed atheist who didn't believe in God, and she fell in love with Matthew McConaughey's character, who happened to be a religious advisor to the President of the United States and a pastor. And in one very poignant part of the film... They're there together and they're arguing their points of view, one for science and one for God. And in this very intense emotional time of the film, Matthew McConaughey asks Jodie Foster's character about her father who had passed away. She had grown up without a mother and her father died and she had given her life to science largely because of the influence and love and guidance of her dad. But her dad is now dead. And so Matthew McConaughey asks her character, Did your dad love you? To which she responds very emotionally and almost violently and offended that he would ask that. And she rhymes off all the reasons that she knows her father loved her and still loves her. And then he looks at her very, very compassionately and says in probably the most potent part of the film, prove it. And everything stands still. You see, for her, the love was real, tangible, experiential. But how could she prove it? And this was what this pastor was trying to use to prove the existence of God. And part of the reason we have these struggles is because our English language, we use love for all kinds of things. I might say, I love pizza. And then I'll say, I love Debbie. Then I might say, I love my kids. And then I'll follow that up with, I love hot summer nights, or I love the anticipation of hot summer nights, Lord willing to come. Now, the weird thing is, it's that it's the 
the onus is on you. You who listen to me say these things. You're the ones expected to know and quantify what I mean. When I use all of these different expressions, in other words, you're supposed to know that Steve loves Debbie more than he loves pizza, even Pizza Hut. We have songs about love, poems about love. We have movies about love, books about love. We've all kinds of cute expressions for love. In my family, Debbie and I, with our kids, we used to have this expression, and we'd say it especially at night, I love you the whole world and a bucket full. I know you can hear the music playing so softly of cuteness right now, right? I love you with all my heart, we say. But have you ever thought about what we're actually claiming or how we can claim these magnificent claims of love? I always have a fun time. One of the neat things for me as a pastor is premarital counseling. And I always love that point in the counseling time where we get to planning the wedding and each couple want to discuss their vows. And it never ceases to amaze me because every time each couple want to either write their own vows or they want to find the most passionate and meaningful vows of all time. And they want to just declare their love to one another. And there's not a couple I've done yet that don't arrive at that Brian Adams song, everything I do, I do it for you. Oh, I die for you because I love you so much. But that's actually where the problem seems to lie. Again, we talk about love, sing about love. We want to be loved. We want to love. We want to promise to love and we want to be promised that we will be loved and we make all kinds of promises. My thing is, is do we really believe what we're saying? Do we even understand what we're saying? Do we even understand the promises that we're making or the promises we're longing for. Now, there are literally thousands of pop, rock, or ballad love songs that you can go to. I only found one for sake of time. I looked up this great uh, love song writer, Enrique Iglesias, and in one of his most popular songs on love, here are the lyrics. Now, this is the problem. We love music, and very rarely do we ever actually read the lyrics. Here is the lyrics of one of his, I think it's his second best love song. I've kissed the moon a million times. I don't know why. Danced with angels in the sky. Well, we know that's not true. I've seen snowfall in the summertime. He must have visited Newfoundland. Felt the healing of the powers above. I've seen the world from the highest mountain. I assume he went to Mount Everest. Tasted love from the purest fountain. I've seen lips that spark desire. Felt the butterflies a hundred times. I've even seen miracles. I felt the pain disappear. But still haven't seen anything that amazes me quite like you do. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, really? You see, this is the struggle. This is the struggle we have with love. Every one of you listening to me right now needs love. I need it. You need it. We need it. We long for it. And in fact, we even want to give it. And every one of us has had times where we've imagined about it. And we'd like to believe that when we love, we would do it right and well. Or when someone loves us back, they would love us right and well. But the truth of the matter is, on March, the first Sunday of March of 2021, we've all known the sting of not being loved. 
end of not being loving. And we get confused about what love means. For instance, when I tell Debbie, I love you, and if you hear me, we tend to think in terms of romance or a promise. When you hear me tell Debbie I love her, you're thinking that I'm promising to be faithful to her or I'm going to provide for her or I'm going to protect her. But you think something totally different when I say, I love my kids. When you hear that, you think it's a love that says, I love you so much that I will not let you have ice cream for breakfast. Or I love you so much because I do make you study or practice piano or be at home at a decent time and get enough sleep. You see, it's funny, isn't it? We don't tend to think and talk about love the same way. You would never imagine me of saying to Debbie, I love you, meaning I love you so much that I'm going to keep you from doing stuff. Or what about our friends? And so if you and I get confused about how we love each other, what we mean by loving each other, and what we want when we love each other, is it any wonder that I think that one of the problems in our day today is that we get confused about the love of God and the love of Jesus. Michael Reeves in his newest book says, indeed the nature of love is defined by its object and he wants to illustrate it by these three statements. I love and have real affection for my dog. And I love and have real affection for my wife. And I love and have real affections for my God. Now here's the weird thing, right? Each is true, but rendering, reading them together like that should make you wince. Every one of you probably at home looked and said, tell me Steve's not saying he loves his dog, Debbie, and God the same way. You know there must be something terribly wrong if I mean exactly the same thing. And you sincerely hope there is a difference. And there is. Reeves says the three loves differ because of the objects of the love differs. And so I'm inviting you to come with me today. I want you to come with me on an amazing journey as we kick it off in John chapter 13 verse 1. And we're going to go all the way to the end of John chapter 17. John chapters 13 to 17 could very well be the magnus opus of scripture. Alexander McLaren writes, nowhere else do the blended lights of our Lord's superhuman dignity and human tenderness shine with such bright brightness. Nowhere else in his speech at once so simple and so deep. Nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. On no other page, even of the Bible, have so many eyes glistened with tears. And so many others had their tears wiped away. The immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper room are his highest self-revelation in speech. The Anglican minister J.C. Ryle says, this passage we have now begins one of the most interesting portions of John's gospel. For five consecutive chapters, we find John the evangelist recording matters which are not mentioned by Matthew, Mark, or Luke. We can never be thankful enough that the Holy Spirit has caused them to be written for our learning. In each and every age, the context of this chapter and these chapters have been justly regarded as one of the most precious parts of the Bible. They have been the meat and drink, the strength and comfort of every true-hearted Christian. So let us approach them with particular and peculiar reverence. The place whereon we stand 
is indeed holy ground. In Calvary Baptist Church, and all of you as friends and visitors that are watching, I would contend that this is what separates the love of God, the love of Jesus, and our weak, frail attempts and love cries of humanity. Is it any wonder then that great hymns of the faith, the great anthems of praise that tell us what we need to know, not what we want to know. And that is one of the burdens I have for our church. I don't want you to come to church every Sunday and have, you, have us here ask you, how do you all feel today? Because likely in a five, uh, level five lockdown for the second time in a year, none of us feels great. But we don't come to church to find out how we feel. We come to church because we want to know what God wants us to know, especially about his love and so we come to Jesus because Jesus love is so much deeper and stronger and heavenward in our imagination listen to these words of the hymn writer I wonder if he had read John 13 to 17 when he wrote the love of God is greater far than any tongue or pen can tell And it goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. And so he says, when heaven and hell, the guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his or her sin. And could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth, every blade of grass on earth a quill, and every man and woman a scribe by trade. Watch this. To write about the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure. How measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and the angels' song. I've got to be honest. I've longed to preach these five chapters of the Bible for my entire pastoral ministry. These chapters give us and have given me a glimpse into my gentle and lowly Jesus on such a personal and intimate level. These chapters have changed my life. These are the chapters that grip me. John chapter 17, when Jesus prays, and the first time I ever realized that Jesus Christ knelt down in the garden of Gethsemane with the weight of sin and the cross upon him, and he cried out to his Father, for me has changed my life forever. And this is why pastors and commentators have spoken of this passage and the vastness of it and the riches of it and the power of it. But most importantly, The intimacy of it. But I'm going to tell you and be very honest. You will not appreciate this if you can't step back from the world and then step in and see the love of Jesus. The Gospel of John. It's 21 chapters. Chapters 1 to 12, as I've told you many times, is called the book of signs. Seven signs carefully chosen. Conversations with people, men and women and groups 
And John, the apostle, has been very deliberate in the signs he chose. He wanted you and I to arrive at the conclusion I've told you with every single sermon I've preached. Now, Jesus did many other signs, he said, that could have been done in the presence of the disciples. But he said, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, get this now, On the first Sunday of March of 2021, if you believe in Jesus, in the love of Jesus, in the everlasting love of Jesus, you will have life in his name. John is often called the beloved disciple. He was one of the sons of thunder. David is preaching through his three letters and he is called the author of both love and truth. And herein lies humanity's issues with understanding love. Because all too often we define love based on our feelings, not our need. Now let me say that again. All too often we define love based on our feelings. Love is a feeling, not our need. And we look for love that makes us feel right versus what is right. But not Jesus. That's not how he works. Jesus is love. So every word, every deed, every intent for you and I is not only love, it is loving. And John chapter 13 verse 1, the reason I'm preaching an entire sermon just on this one verse is because it's the hinge verse of the entire book. We leave the book of signs and now we come to what is called the book of passion. Or maybe we should call it the book of love. This is what chapters 13 to 21 are. Now I want you to think about it in its context. Let me read this verse. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, watch this, to the Father. Now watch this sentence. If you write in your Bible, underline, highlight, mark this sentence. Having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Now catch this. Jesus Christ, when this verse is written, is less than 18 hours from Calvary. Hours from these words, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, will be betrayed, arrested. He'll endure six different trials Three civil and three legal. He will be laughed at, scorned, and berated. He'll be whipped and beaten, tortured and passed around and interrogated. Jesus is hours away from carrying his own cross and being so physically weak, collapsing underneath it. Jesus will be nailed and then risen up, challenged and doubted as he hangs between earth and heaven that he created, by the way. His clothes will be stripped away from him and gambled away. He'll be offered cheap and drugged wine to drink as he is left to die naked, not only for before people, but the humiliation of being a male man naked before his earthly mother. And then laying down his life, they speared his side as one last measure to confirm that he was, in fact, dead. John chapter 13, verse 1, John goes out of his way to let you and I know that Jesus 
knew this was his hour. Jesus knew this was going to happen to him, and he knew it in that much detail. Now, let me ask you something. If 18 hours or less from now, you knew that was going to happen to you, where would your mind be? Where would your heart be? What would occupy your thoughts? What would you do with yourself? Where would your attention be? Where would your focus be? What would your emotions be? So Calvary, anybody in the watching audience, for just a few more minutes, I want to tell you about two things from chapter 13, verse 1. I want you to behold the passion, everlasting love of Jesus. I want you to behold the commitment of God, yes, to his glory, but to our good. I want you to see the power of Jesus and the dedication, and yes, again, the love of God, so rich and pure. So if you're writing notes, here's my number one point for you. I want you to see the passionate, pointed love of Christ. In just John 13, 1, It's the feast of the Passover. It's the last Passover that Jesus would in somehow be a part of in his public ministry. He knows that his hour has come. He's going to depart out of the world and to the Father. But he knows that the road is 18 hours of literal hell. But John wants us to know, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus want, sorry, John wants us to know that Jesus not only knew what he was about to suffer, he knew that his hour was here. And that hour language is a part of the gospel of John. All the way back in John chapter 2, Jesus told his mother when she wanted him to turn water into wine, he said, woman, why are you asking this of me? My hour has not yet come. He told the woman at the well in John chapter 4 when they were talking about Samaria and Israel and where you worshiped. And he said, the hour was coming and was here when folks would worship God. And you had to worship him in spirit and in truth. He said this again in John chapter 5 to a group of religious Pharisees. And then John wanted us to know in John chapter 7 and 8 when religion wanted to arrest Jesus, they couldn't because his hour wasn't here yet. But then in John chapter 12, Jesus declared to everyone that his hour was now at hand. Now you may ask, okay, Steve, why? Why does John the Apostle want us to know that? Why are you making such an issue of Jesus knowing all this? Well, okay, let me take you back into John chapter 12. Listen to these words in verse 27. If you've got your Bible, flip over a page. Listen to Jesus. Now is my soul troubled. He knows what's about to happen to him in grave detail. And then he says, and what shall I say? Father... Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see, this is why I asked you, what would be on your heart and mind if you knew, this is my end. This is what I'm going to have to endure. But do you know what was on Jesus' mind? 
Was it the glory of God? Yes. But John the Apostle wants you and I to know in John chapter 13, verse 1, facing 18 hours of utter hell, facing the worst he was ever going to face, and he was thinking about those who are his. You and me. He's thinking about us. John is showing us the love of God. J.M. Boyce said, Oh, God has done some things for all people, but God, on the other hand, God, Jesus has done all things for some people, and that's those who will trust Jesus and his love. You see, it is Christ's all-saving love for those that are his own. And if that's true, if all I have said to you up to this point is true, catch this what I'm saying is Jesus loves you and if he would love you while he's about to go face the wrath of God and the worst that humans could do for your sin and mine then you cannot exhaust that love you will never get Jesus to stop loving you you'll never get Jesus that will love you in a deeper higher wider than any other love you've experienced any other love you can imagine or long for and on top of that it's an eternal everlasting love and watch now look at John 13 1 why can I say this because number one he chose us Again, look at that last sentence, having loved his own. Now, if you write in your Bible, write your name there. Having loved Stephen. Having loved Debbie. Having loved Leanne. Having loved David. Having loved Curtis, he loved us, them, to the end. He will tell us in John chapter 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I love this. Charles Spurgeon says, a man or woman may surely, surely, surely choose his own spouse. And Christ chose his own spouse. He chose his own church. And while the Bible stands, that doctrine can never be eradicated from it. That's why Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Jesus knows you because you're his own. You can trust him. You can run to Jesus. You can give your life to Jesus because he loves you. He chose you. But what's more than that is not only did Jesus choose you, God gave you. God had given us to Jesus as a reward for his obedience, for his suffering, for his giving God glory to the Father. In other words, Jesus knew that God was going to give to Jesus the results of his love. All the way back in John chapter 1, what does John tell us? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, God, gave the right to become the children of God. Now watch this. Who were born, not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Now, don't watch this. Don't miss this. But of God. Jesus would say in John 6, all the Father gives me will come to me. So listen to me. God has elected us to Jesus. Now, think about Ephesians chapter 1. When Paul wants to explain this doctrine, He writes to this Ephesian church. 
who are in the midst of struggle, cultures against them. At this time, plague, earthquakes were common. Political unrest was normal. The polarization of people was common. Does that not sound like 21st century Canada? And then he writes, even as he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him, God. Now watch. In love, he predestined us. For what? For adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So now, what's the result of that? In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood. That's blessing number one. The forgiveness of our sins, our trespasses. How? According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Okay, watch this. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And this was the plan for the fullness of time. Well, what's the plan? To unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Do you see the love of Jesus yet? Did you notice the words? He chose us. He predestined us. He elected us for adoption, redemption, forgiveness, riches, lavished. Jesus loves us. God chose us. (laughs) This might be my favorite part. The Holy Spirit gave birth to us. See, when you trust Jesus, Jesus gives us his spirit. That's what he told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Remember that great Pharisee that came to him at night and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he or she can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And he says, don't be shocked. Don't marvel that I said unto you, you've got to be born again. And then he gives an example of something you and I deal with, especially here in Newfoundland, all the time. He uses the wind. He says, the wind blows where it wants. You hear its sound and you don't know where it came from. You don't know where it goes. And he says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Stop now. Okay, stop. Because this is the struggle you and I have. We want to think we understand the love of God, and you don't. We want to think that we live our lives and experience life through the lens of God's love, and too often we don't. Charles Spurgeon said, the fact that you are truly Christ's is the fountain of innumerable pleasures and blessings to your heart. Watch this. Jesus calls us his own. So you're his sheep. You're his disciple. You're his friend. You're his brother or sister. You are his member in his body. This is the title of anybody who runs to and trusts in Jesus. You are his 
own. Having loved his own. And do you realize how different that is from the world? The world wants to tattoo you and define you and stamp you and own you. And too many of you, me included, try to define ourselves and own ourselves. And if you allow me to be a little bit bold, from the youngest to the oldest of you, how's that working out? How is trying to find your identity in sex working out for the world? How is trying to find our identity in politics working out for the world? How is trying to find our value in every cause working out for the world? All it does is divide us and make us hate each other. Only Jesus, who has loved you before he ever said, let there be light. You see, John wants you and I to know that he loved his own And he loved them to the end. And this is why I get struck on John 13, 1. This is why I cling to Jesus on a personal level. It's why I got to run to the old rugged cross. This is why I run to Jesus over and over again with my doubts and my fears and my hurts and my failures. John wants you to know and I want you to know That Jesus loves me and he loves you. And he knows everything about us. And even this verse tells us he knew everything that he he was going to face. And yet he's thinking about you and I. And you know what's amazing? Is not only is he thinking about you and I. But he understands how unworthy and weak we are. When John writes this verse. And Jesus realizes he's 18 hours from hell on earth. He knows when he says, having loved them, he loved us to the end, that Judas would betray him and Peter would deny him. He knows that all 12 would abandon him. John the apostle who's writing this, writes this knowing that he would fall asleep at the garden of Gethsemane, not once, not twice, three times. And yet... Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Have you ever thought about how foolish these guys were? How easily confused? How quickly they doubted? J.C. Ryle says, knowing perfectly well that they were about to forsake him shamefully in a fiery few hours. In full, full view of this, their approaching display of weakness and infirmity, our blessed master did not cease to have loving thoughts for his disciples. So I, I don't care how frustrated you are or feel, how weak you feel, how unworthy you feel. Jesus loves you. He just does. You and I can come to Jesus with our failures and our weaknesses. We can come to Jesus with our questions and our doubts. And all right, let me say it for what it is. We can come to Jesus with our sin, our frustrations. We can come to him with our, I don't get it. I don't like it. Why is this happening? 
Jesus is gentle and lowly, true. He is long-suffering and patient, absolutely. But it is all motivated by the measureless love of God. Having loved them, he loved them to the end. Now watch this very quickly now. I want to end with this. I want you to notice the past, present, and future love of Christ. John chapter 13, verse 1. One verse. Jesus takes the song, Jesus loves me, and he brings it to a whole new level. Because Jesus has loved us all the way from the past. All the way back in the Garden of Eden. Jesus loved us and has been directing his love toward each and every one of us if we trust in him. He, we've been created in the image of God. We've been created for communion with God. And it's always been God who has given us our purpose and our value and our worth. And this is why you matter. And can I say politically, this is why every life matters. God promised Eve redemption in the face of her failure. Jesus left heaven's glory in Philippians chapter 1 out of love for us. It was love that drove Christ out of heaven for the miseries of earth. It was a mark of his love that he was born not in a palace, but in poverty of a stable. Jesus loved us to create, loved us to come, and loved us to call. And he calls us, he calls us out of our sin, calls us to trust and follow him. He calls us not because you can give him anything. He calls you not because you can earn it. He calls you not because you can impress him. He calls you because he loves us. He looks all the way back into your past. He sees all your anger, your bitterness, your sin. It might be in the form of failed friendships or a failed marriage or failed parenting. He sees your struggle with school or mom and dad. He sees your demands for power or pleasure or ease. He understands your impulses and your defensiveness. He sees your making idols and possessions of people or things. He watches us fuss and fight outside the church and inside the church. And he says... Yeah, I came and lived and died for that because I love you. But he loves you when you're present. He loves you when you're right here and right now. And can I say, Calvary family, and any of you looking that claim to be Christians, this is actually, I think, the number one struggle of Christians. You go to Jesus and you get saved. You confess your sin, you repent of it, you trust Jesus with all of your past, and then as if we start living as if now it's up to me to live life. He is ever the good shepherd. He constantly brought his disciples beside still waters. He always restored their burdened souls. He always led them in the paths of righteousness all for love. Every Christian can look back over life and look into his presence. What did John Newton say? Through, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want Today. And Jesus will love you into your future. In John chapter 13 verse 1 we learn that Jesus loved his disciples to the end of his life. We learn that Jesus loved his disciples to the end of their life. And we learn that Jesus would love his disciples throughout all of eternity. 
Now personalize that for you. Jesus loves you to the end of his life. The old song was right when he was on the cross. I was on his mind. That's not a cheesy ballad. That's a theological profound truth. And Jesus will love you and I to the end of our life. The psalmist said how precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. So you can give Jesus your past. You can trust Jesus with your present. And you can hope in Jesus with your future. Because he will love you like the disciples to the end of your life. That's why Paul said, what can separate us from the love of God in Romans 8? And the answer is a resounding nothing. So here's the encouragement. But let me ask you everybody this as we clue up. Christians, Calvary, do you turn to Jesus' love with your joys and your sorrows, with your wants and your needs? If Jesus loved you to his own, to the end of the cross, and he's promised to love you to the very end, do you realize that being saved by Christ means far more than going to heaven at the end? Even though that's important. Being loved by Christ means that his love is resting on you through your present life here on the first Sunday of March as we wait for vaccines and we wrestle with government overreach or getting it wrong. Jesus loves you. Do you realize this? It's no wonder then that you will struggle with spiritual weakness and feel dry and distant from the Lord or that you fear the return of Christ if you run from the love of Jesus instead of to the love of Jesus. No one was more devoted to your good, more sympathetic to your plight, more interested in your heart than Jesus Christ who loves his own to the end. And so Christian, during Lent, as we make our way to Easter, don't just look at the horror of the crucifixion because you've got to realize in reality the cross is the ultimate defeat of Satan and the demise of evil. And even though Revelation says he was the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed, it was not Satan's ultimate defeat is not Armageddon. His ultimate and eternal defeat is at the cross. And so husbands and wives, what are you going to do with this? Love your spouse Exampling the love of Jesus. Point your spouse to Jesus. Help your spouse find their value, their identity, their purpose, their beauty in Jesus, not in your approval. Mom and dad, do that for your kids. Single and dating people, do that in friendship for each other. Man or woman, church member, Oswald Chamberlain said, Oswald Saunders said, when Christ has given unrivaled love and obedience, Jesus promised wonderful compensation and no one would be a loser. And to anyone who doesn't know Jesus, if you're looking for Jesus or you're running from Jesus, can I ask you, how could you doubt this love? If Jesus loves like this, and if his power is unending, How can you afford not to receive this great love? And be honest now. Be honest. Young people, do you think that your mom or dad 
Do you think a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Do you think a spouse? Do you think parents, children, or friends offer you a love that will save your soul and endure forever to the very end of the age? Can you tell me of any other love that gladly accepts death in your place no matter how you love back? Do you have a love that will even bear your sin before God so that you can stand spotless and holy in his presence? But you need to realize the day of God's grace is now. And by the way, Hebrews tells us that Jesus cannot lie and that he will never leave you and never forsake you. And I'm not sure, but I would say that's about the best type of love anyone could hope for or find. Because after all, not only will he not forsake you, he was forsaken for you. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them too the end. Jesus loves you. Will you rest in it and on it today? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to preach. Lord, thank you Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you love us. And oh, Father God, help my family, my church family, help me to now go into this week and rest in the love of Jesus. And if anybody is watching out there who is discouraged or in despair, who's angry or hurting, has been hurt or who has hurt others. May they come to Jesus because Jesus loves us. May we know that we can confess our sin because Jesus paid for it. That we can ask for forgiveness because Jesus wants to give it to us. That we can ask to be changed because Jesus has the power and the willingness to change us. Oh God, in March of 2021, help me, help us to know the power of Jesus' love. In Jesus' name, amen.